Amen. So good to be with you, church. My name is Halimsa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. Uh, for the last four weeks, we've been walking through our vision series, simply called We. Starting next week, we're going to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. But during these four weeks, we've been basically asking this question, what are we as a church called to be? What are we as a church called to be? From the very beginning of our church, our founding pastor, Matt Carter, and the rest of the elders, we try to model this church very simply. We try to model it after what the Bible says that our church ought to be. Not what we think it ought to be, not what the world thinks it ought to be, but what the Bible says, what God says that it ought to be. And as we studied and prayed over this book, to the best of our ability to discern, we believe that God is calling us to be a church that loves God, that loves the church, that loves the city, and that loves the nations, these four loves. Last three weeks, we've looked at the first three, particularly the barriers that we face in loving God and loving the church and loving the city. And so today we're going to talk about the barriers that we face in loving the nations. Now, first of all, where do we even get this idea of loving the nations? One of the most explicit places that we see it is in the mission that Jesus gave to his church in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We also know it as the Great Commission, right after Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross, right after he rose again from the dead, and right before he would ascend to return to his Father and to sit at his right hand, he's going to say this. He says, church, I'm gonna give you a mission, and I want you to do this, and I want you to be about this, and I want you to accomplish this until I return, until the end of the age. He says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's the mission of God to love the nations by making disciples of all the nations, to love the nations by going to the nations, by preaching the gospel to the nations, by baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus has taught us, by either going ourselves to the nations or by financially, prayerfully supporting and sending and enabling others to go to the nations. Both are absolutely critical in obeying this call to love the nations. The call of God upon us to love the nations is as clear as it gets. And it's not just as just clear in Matthew chapter 28, but essentially this, the entirety of this Bible, that's what it's all about. It's about all that God has done to save for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So the question is then, what hinders us? If the call, if the command is very clear, to us, the church, what hinders us? What are the barriers that keep us from loving the nations? The barriers are seemingly countless, aren't they? We could just name one after another. 
but I'd like for us to address at least three barriers today. And, and as we do so, ask God that he would do the work of removing every barrier to our loving the nations because Jesus is great and God's glory is worth it. Three barriers I'd like for us to look at. Number one, we lack the experience of God's work. We lack the experience of God's work. And second, we lack the knowledge of the shortness of our days. We lack the knowledge of the shortness of our days. And third, we lack the imagination to imagine eternity's future. We lack the imagination to imagine eternity's future. We lack experience, we lack knowledge, we lack imagination. First barrier, we lack the experience of God's word. Many of you, if not most of you, you've heard this great commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Many of you have read that text before. Many of you have heard that text before. But I don't think many of us have experienced that text before. Now, what do I mean by that? I'll give you a couple of examples of when God's people not only heard his word, but they experienced his word. Peter in Acts chapter two is preaching a sermon. He's preaching a sermon, he preaches this. Acts chapter two, verses 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's my favorite part. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What are we seeing here? We're seeing that Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people just got saved. And that's incredible, right? But how, how? Was it because Peter's preaching was that eloquent? Well, I'm sure pre Peter's preaching was unbelievable, right? But we can't attribute 3,000 people getting saved only to Peter's preaching ability or even to the content of his sermon because if that were the case, 3,000 people would have been saved every time Peter preached. But that didn't happen. Something else happened. What caused 3,000 people to be saved? What happened? Verse 37 tells us, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, okay? 
They heard Peter's preaching. They heard God's word. They heard the gospel, but then something else happened. They didn't just hear God's word. They experienced God's word. It wasn't less than hearing. It was more than hearing. They were cut to the heart. God's word had pierced through by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the primary barriers to our loving the nations is that we lack experiencing God's word. Notice I'm saying, I'm not saying we lack reading God's word, though that may very well be the case. I'm not saying we lack hearing God's word, though that may be the case. I'm saying we lack experiencing God's word. We might be reading, we might be hearing, but we rarely read and hear and memorize and meditate and seek and search until, until we're cut to the heart. God's promise to us is this, you will seek me and you will find me when? When you seek me with all of your heart. When's the last time you sat down, opened up God's word, and you were cut to the heart by it? When's the last time you sat down and you were reading God's word, and then all of a sudden you found that it was reading you? When's the last time that not only you took a hold of God's word, but God's word took a hold of you and it refused to let you go? Right now, as we speak, there are 137 brothers and sisters in Christ from this body, from our church, that are living among the nations right now. People that have left their homes and friends in this country to live amongst an unreached people group to share and declare the gospel to them. And if you were to sit down with every single one of them and have a conversation, they would have one common denominator, one common denominator that caused them to go and say yes. They will all individually be able to tell you of a time when they not only heard, when they not only heard the Great Commission, when they not only read of God's love for the nations, but they experienced it. They experienced it. They were cut to the heart by it. They were gripped with it. James tells us in James 1.21, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Humbly accept it. He says, this is how you receive it. James tells us to humbly receive it. Sometimes, right, we have 15 minutes in the morning to read the Bible. And so you read it for 15 minutes and... Nothing really happens, and so you say, okay, but I read it, box checked. And can I tell you, church, as a person who's done that many, 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 many times, can I tell you that that's not humbly accepting God's word? There's nothing humble about a Christian who says, okay, God, you got 15 minutes, go. But too many times that described the condition of my heart when I would open up this book. It's not that God can't meet with you in 15 minutes. It's what it probably says about our hearts when we only give him 15 minutes. But I also know this, and I know you've experienced it as well, times when I wake up a little earlier and my countenance, my heart, it's different. It's humble. It's humble enough to say, God, I need you. God, I really need you. Unless you speak, I won't make it through the season. God, unless you speak, I won't make it through today, right? But even still, this is often my experience, even during those times. I read the chapters that are assigned to me in my Bible reading plan, 
and in my morning stupor, I know I, know I just read it, but I can't remember what I just read. Like, what did, what did I just read? Right? Have you been there? And I'm so tempted, even at that time, to go, well, okay, I gave it a shot. I walk away, check the box, frustrated even. Right, God, I, I said I needed you. I didn't say nothing. But then God gives me the humility to come to the realization that this is God's word. It's God-breathed, and he says it's living. He says this book is living, and it's active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it says that this word, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of my heart, that I don't go to read this book, but this book God has given us to read us. It's like a mirror. It shows us what, it, what we look like. And so, if it's not disturbing me, if it's not grabbing me, if it's not moving me, if it's not working on me, the problem is with me, not him. The problem is with me, not it. And so I read it again. And I read it again. And I think upon each word and phrase until all of a sudden I'm cut to the heart. And now here's not what I'm saying. Here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, oh, you're not getting much out of your quiet time, you just need to try harder. I'm not saying that at all. Of course, spending extended time in God's word to pray and meditate and to memorize, it's important, it's helpful, but that's not the key to experiencing God's word. Well, what is the key? The key is the heart, not the method. So many of us, we focus on the method, right? Just tell me what to do. Tell me what method, Bible study technique I should be using. What's the right length of time? Is it one hour and 27 seconds? I'll do that. Just tell me what to do, right? It's not the method, it's the heart. The only thing that we need to experience God's word, the only thing that we need, right, to experience being cut to the heart, the only thing that we need is need. We just need to need him. We just need to desperately need him. God wants to meet with you. He promises to meet with you, but he does set one condition on it. You have to need him. You will seek me and you will find me when? When you seek me with all of your heart. The only thing that he's asking for is all of your heart, all of it. And the only time we'll ever give it to him is when we're humbled enough to need him. It's only when we go to God's word with this kind of need, with this kind of humility that the Holy Spirit breaks through and we're cut to the heart and we start bearing the fruit of obedience. And loving the nations, it's too difficult. It's too God glorifying. It requires too much sacrifice, either to be a goer or to be a sender. The price is cutting back on your lifestyle. The price is suffering, sometimes even death. Our church has paid it. And there's just no way that we're gonna do it unless, unless we experience God's word and we're cut to the heart by it. Until this word gets a grip on us and just does not let us go. Sometimes we ask for a sign, don't we? It's a miraculous kind of experience where we say, God, you want me to go, I'll go. Just show me very clearly and I'll go, right? 
Let me pour my cereal in the morning and just have it spell out missions and, and I'll go. God, you do that for me, I will go, I promise, right? Well, let me tell you the sign that Paul received, sign that Paul received that compelled him to go. Paul, as many of you know, is apart from Jesus, the greatest missionary ever to live. What compelled him to go? And not only go, but go to the most unreached, the most dangerous places in all the world. Well, he tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse 20. He says, and thus I make it my ambition. He says, this is my ambition, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then he gives us the reason. But as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52, 15, he says, this is my reason for my ambition. Isaiah 52, 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says, I make this my ambition. Church, what's your ambition? What's your ambition in life? Paul says, this is my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. In other words, in the most unreached, which meant for the most part, the most dangerous places in all the world. And then he gives us the foundation, the reason that compelled him to have such an ambition. And do you know what we kind of expect him to say here? We expect him to say, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel in the most unreached, hardest place because of my road to Damascus experience. Remember his road to Damascus experience? Remember Paul has this incredible experience of being confronted by Jesus, but he doesn't say that. But he doesn't root it there. He roots it in God's written down word. I'm sure the Damascus road experience was incredible for Paul, but it wasn't his foundation. God's word was. As incredible as it would be to pour a bowl of cereal and have it spell out missions, right? That can't be your foundation. That's kind of the condition of our hearts, really. It's so deceitful. It tries to justify everything away. As, as crazy as the experience is, later on down the road, days later, weeks later, years later, we wonder, well, did I really see that? Did I really experience that? And so our foundation has to be God's written down word. Greatest revelation that we could ever receive. So there's no doubting this. Saying, I wrote it down for you. God's word has to be our foundation. And so Paul obeyed. He went. But what was the cost of his loving the nations? What was the price that he had to pay to go and love the nations? He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24, says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. It says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, one time too many, right? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What compels a man to pay such a price? What compels a man to say, I'll sign up for that? Paul was compelled because he read 
in one morning on his quiet time. Isaiah 52, verse 15. God's promise that those who have never been told of Jesus will see. And those who have never heard the gospel will understand. And he was gripped by it. He was cut to the heart by it to the point where he said, I'm willing to do anything for this. I'm willing to give anything to see this happen. But unfortunately and sadly for many of us, that's not our goal. That's not the goal. That's not the driving mission of our life. Our ambitions in this life look so different than Paul's ambitions. Why? Why? Because at worst, we're just completely ignoring and disobeying God's call on us, right? That would be a scary, dangerous thing, but very much a possibility. Or, or we lack the knowledge of the shortness of our days. Or we lack the knowledge of the shortness of our days, which is the second barrier to our loving the nations. We lack the knowledge of the shortness of our days. We haven't grasped the reality that as the good old song says, soon and very soon, what? We're going to see the king. Soon and very soon we're going to see the king and we're going to be called to give an account for how we live. We're going to have to give an account for our ambitions that we had in this world. We're going to have to give an account for how we responded to the great commission. Your king has given you a mission. And stand be, standing before him on that day, what are we going to say? So did you go? Uh, so did you send? And this is a universal problem. Every single human being thinks they have tomorrow, right? We all think we have tomorrow to change. We all think we have tomorrow to repent. We all think we have tomorrow to get it right. And so David says, Psalm 39, verse 4, O Lord, make me to know my end. Lord, show me what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And I want to share with you an excerpt from a sermon that God used in my life to, I believe, change the whole trajectory of my life the sermon that God used to cut me to the heart and, and to make me determine more than ever to consider the measure of my days, to pursue to the best of my ability, not wasting my life here on earth, but making it count in eternity for the glory of the cross of Jesus. It's a sermon preached by Pastor John Piper um, at a college event when I was a junior at Texas A&M. It's a long excerpt, but I just listened to it again this week, and I just wept through it. It rang just as clearly, just as true today, this week, as it did 20 years ago. And so I've been praying that God would use it to do the same for you. I didn't really know how to do it. I wish I could just kind of play a video clip, but it's so old and busted and grainy. And so I'm just going to do my best John Piper impersonation, okay? He said this. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few things that are great and then be willing to live for them and to die for them. 
The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now, and I think it's true for us today, is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not care about your life making a difference. All you want, all you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice car, a nice car, Nice house, long weekends, good vacations, grow old, healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, and no hell. And that's all you want. And you don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. And then he shared this story of two missionaries from their church. He said, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Elias and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life, a nurse. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick, the poor, and the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards was a medical doctor, widowed, nearing retirement, decided to partner up with Ruby. She was also pushing 80 years old and going from village to village in Cameroon the brakes fail, over a cliff they go, and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Was that a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, a whole life driven by one great vision, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after almost all of their American counterparts have begun to throw away their lives on trivialities in Florida or New Mexico, they fly into eternity with the death in a moment. Is that a tragedy? No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is, he said. And he read this article from Reader's Digest titled, Start Now, Retire Early. Start Now, Retire Early. It said, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Now that's a tragedy, he said. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. 
the American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter of your life, your one and only life before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat, God. Look at my boat. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. And I pray not for us. Don't waste your life, he said. Don't waste it. It's so short. It's so precious. We get one life, right? We get one life to lay down for Jesus, to go to the hard places and do the hard things for the glory of the cross of Jesus. That message changed the trajectory of my life. That message forever changed my view of retirement. To the best of Angela and I's ability to discern, we're called to stay here and to serve this local church along with many of you. We're called to be senders. We're called to be senders. For every one of us that's called to go, I believe there needs to be 20 of us that are called to send, to send through prayer, financial support, through advocacy teams. William Carey was a frontier missionary to India. Frontier missionary to India in 1792, and he gave, this, gave us this visual of what a sender is. He saw missions as a miner penetrating into a deep mine. Miner penetrating into a deep mine, which had never been explored with no one to guide. And he said this to his community of friends that were sending him. He said, friends, I will go down. He said, friends, I will go down if you will hold the rope. I will go down if you will hold the rope. And one of his friends wrote, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. And I want our church to be filled with two kinds of people. I want our church to be filled with only two kinds of people, no exception. Those who are called to go down into the pit and those who say, I will hold your rope. Only two kinds. Angela and I, Lord willing, would like to spend our 40s and 50s holding the rope here with you. But if God would have us, we would love to spend our 60s and 70s and perhaps 80s if God would give us strength to go down into the pit. And we hope many of you would join us. We hope many of you would hold our rope. And so we lack the experience of God's word and we lack the knowledge of the shortness of our days and the last barrier to loving the nations. I think we lack the imagination to imagine eternity's future. I think we lack the imagination to imagine the greatest reality in all the universe. Think about this. Everything we pursue and go after in this world, right? all the things that we pursue and go after in this world, everything that we're willing to spend our lives going hard after in this world, we do it because we're able to imagine and we regularly imagine what it would be like to attain that thing, right? And so you go to school and you labor and you pull all-nighters studying for tests 
You do hard work. Why? Because you can imagine the day when you finally get to graduate and get a job and make money. And at work, you're willing to work hard during the day, give up evenings even. Why? Because you can imagine getting that promotion. As parents, you're willing to labor and do hard work in raising your kids. Why? Because you imagine that your days are limited. Because you realize and you imagine that day what it would be like when they're finally leaving your house. And you're like, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they're ready for that day. We do hard things in this world. The only possible way that we do hard things in this world is by imagining, is by imagining. Without imagination, we don't do hard things. But what about imagining eternity's future? What about imagining the end of this age? What about imagining past our lives here on earth? I want us to read from Revelation chapter seven. And as we read, Let's imagine together with our greatest imagining ability what this day will be like, okay? And as we read, let's ask God that we would do more than hear, that we would be cut to the heart by it. Revelation chapter seven, starting with verse nine. After this, I looked. Imagine seeing this. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You imagining it? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne can you picture them? Can you imagine them? All the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures as they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. This portion of scripture is breathtaking. We see people from every nation, from all tribes and languages, singing the praises of Jesus. Not one language is missing. Every people group is there and represented and singing and worshiping Jesus. And what we have to realize is that this is prophecy. It's a look into what will happen. God is giving us a glimpse into eternity's future, but will you spend the time and the energy imagining it? and imagining it regularly. That's the key to loving the nations. That's the key to any kind of obedience to Jesus, especially the hard ones. Imagining this, the question that every believer needs to ask and wrestle with is this question. Is this day, is this day real? We all have to wrestle with this. Is this day real? Is it really gonna happen? And if you don't believe it's gonna happen, you just go live the way that you want. But a believer is one that reads Revelation 7 and says that day's coming. It's really gonna happen. And if you're in Christ today, you know something else, that you're gonna be there. One of the persons that John is seeing 
in the multitude that no one could number is you. Is you. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, will I be there? Am I going to be standing in the midst of the great multitude that no one could number? Will I be standing there among people from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages? Am I going to be there clothed in white with palm branches in my hand? Am I going to be there crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb? And will I be there as the angels look back at us and they start shouting back, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine this day? It's, it's happening, church. It's gonna come with all of your imaginating power. That's not even a word. With all of your imagining power, imagine this day. Imagine it and ask yourself, what are you willing to do to labor for that day? We regularly have this thought in life, right? We have this thought in life, and the thought is, only if I knew then what I know now, how different would I live? How different would I have lived? Only if I knew then what I know now. In other words, if I had the opportunity to speak to my seven-year-old self, what would I say to him? As my world's being turned upside down, moving from Korea to America, not being able to say a single word in English, what would I say to him? What would I tell my college self? I would say, hey, don't worry about studying for biochem, you're going to be a pastor. <laughs> I would say, lay off the Whataburger a little bit. What would you tell your middle school self? Right? What would you tell your 20-year-old self? What would you tell your newlywed Self. Only if I knew then what I know now, how I would have lived differently, right? And as Angela and I were talking about this this week, she said, and what would your 10,000-year-old self tell you now? I love my wife. What a question. What would your 10,000-year-old self? If you had the opportunity to break through time and space, Look at you in the eyes, your 10,000-year-old self with your glorified bodies, no more sin, no more death, your face shining like the sun because you've been staring at Jesus all day. What would they tell you? I think they would say something like this. I think they would look at us and say, it's all going to be worth it. It's all going to be worth it. Whatever you have to lay down now, whatever you have to sacrifice now, whatever tears you have to cry now so that our King Jesus will receive the worship that he is due, worship from every tongue, tribe, and nation, it's going to be worth it. And so do the hard thing. Go to the hard places. Don't waste your life. It's so short. It's so precious. Lay it down for King Jesus. It's all going to be worth it. What you do with your life now, it truly does. It truly does echo in eternity. I think that's what they would say. Don't you think? 
want to close by showing a video. And it tells the story of our church in the last 10 years. 10 years ago is when we began to together, as a church, be cut to the heart with this reality of God's love for the nations. 10 years ago, 10 years ago is when we begin to realize the shortness of our days. The shortness of our days as a church, right? God's giving us only a certain amount of time. What are we gonna do with our church? How are we gonna live? 10 years ago is when we started asking this question together. God, are you calling me to go? Or God, are you calling me to stay and send? Only two types. There's no third option. And so as we watch this video together, let's, let's make that our prayer as we pray together, as we ask God, God, are you calling me to go or are you calling me to send? Are you calling me to go down into the pit or are you calling me to hold the rope? Let's watch the video together. Due to security concerns for our goers, we've cut this part of the sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the work being done abroad for the sake of the gospel, please visit forthenations.org.